would invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 32. We'll get to in just a few moments. I also would like to add my thanks to Grace Baptist Chapel, uh, to Brother Ryan and to all the dear saints here for their kindness and generosity in hosting us so well today. I'm honored uh, to be asked by the committee to bring a message and to be a part of this conference. And I bring to you greetings from Providence Baptist Church in Harrisonburg. I'm thankful to be serving the Lord amongst those dear people. And I'm also very thankful for my two brothers that brought the messages this morning. They ministered to my heart and soul in a very powerful way. I'm thankful for God's grace. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Father, I, I beseech your holy face that you would be gracious to us again this afternoon. That you would be pleased by the power of your spirit to teach us the holy scriptures. And that you would cause us to internalize this wonderful doctrine of repentance so much so that we would be known as reformed and repenting Baptists. We will give you thanks for doing that work in us we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been assigned the third, excuse me, the fourth <laughs> paragraph in chapter 15, and it reads, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Now, just a little bit of background and connection in relationship to the, to the confession itself. This paragraph is presenting, I believe, the necessity of repentance for our sanctification. So the, the Baptist Catechism gives us a good, brief definition of, of sanctification when it says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the likeness of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And then jumping from the Catechism back to the Confession in chapter 13, Paragraph 2, it says, This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. I think also very helpful is... Uh, is just a quote from Sinclair Ferguson in his uh, 
book on the Holy Spirit, uh, which shows the relationship between repentance and sanctification very uh, succinctly when he writes, salvation is salvation from sin. It involves more than forgiveness. It includes our sanctification. It must therefore engage those who are saved in the turning away uh, from sin, which is involved in repentance. There can be no salvation which allows for an unchanged pattern of continuing in sin. So what I would like to do, having given sort of that introduction, is to point out that this particular paragraph establishes for us three requirements concerning repentance that are absolutely necessary for our sanctification. As I present each of these three requirements, I'm going to follow the same procedure. I'm going to give an explanation of the requirement followed by some application. So the first requirement for, uh, for our sanctification related to repentance is that repentance is a lifelong duty of the Christian. Oh, how nice it would be if something of the Christian life would be, you know, we would have completion uh, prior to maybe our closing our eyes in death, but God has saw otherwise, and we are called in sanctification to pursue uh, Christ-likeness, and the necessity there is that we would be always repenting of our sins. I don't think that a, a great deal of um, time needs to be spent with this because it's universally understood and recognized by us. But it is imperative that I share a few clear passages of Scripture to confirm this duty since it really is the basis for the two other requirements that are found in this paragraph. And so I want to begin reading in Psalm 32, not reading the whole psalm, although it would all be appropriate, but simply focusing on verses 3 through 5, where God's Word says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I was, excuse me, and I will confess um, my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And then if you will go forward in the, in the Psalms to Psalm 41, we have again David the psalmist writing in verse 4 of Psalm 41. And he says, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And then also in Psalm 51, which is very well known to us, we read in verses 1 and following. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then our Lord and Savior, as he sends forth the book of the Revelation to, uh, to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, on five specific occasions in Revelation 2 and 3, calls the Christians of the churches of Asia Minor to repent and to turn to him. And then when Christ is also instructing us uh, concerning prayer and giving us a model for how we would, um, of the, the type of requests that we should bring before him in prayer, there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, he instructs us to uh, ask the Father to forgive us of our debts. Back again to Revelation in chapter 16, twice there in verse 9 and in verse 11, we are shown that God judges those who do not repent. And on the other hand, we can say that believers are those who keep on repenting for the whole of their sojourn on this earth. All of these passages, of course, reveal to us that repentance is the daily duty of the saved. <coughs> Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, for which he is famous, penned quite a bit about repentance, but one of those theses, he writes, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, there in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so what we are learning is that repentance is very clearly a lifelong duty of each believer. So why is this duty so important? Since someone might be thinking all of our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. I think the importance of a life of Repentance is captured by Robert Robinson in the third verse of his famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And this is what he writes. Let that grace, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The battle with sin is not over until the second that we see the face of our Savior. And so as we pursue this lifelong duty, it becomes very helpful to think of it in terms of ungodliness is to be rejected and righteousness is to be embraced. And it is a fight that must be fought and one that must be won. What then should motivate us to repent? Well, for believers, as we've already ably heard, it is not to be a legal requirement, but rather our motivation in repentance is to be because of the goodness of God. In Romans chapter 2 and in verse 4, Paul writes, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Amen. Psalm 51 and verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. 
God is there ready and willing to receive us each and every time we come to Him, admitting our sins, confessing our sins, and seeking for His pardon and forgiveness. In fact, probably the most graphic and most beautiful illustration that could be given of our gracious God is found in the parable of the prodigal son uh, that uh, Jesus uh, communicated to us. And we find ourselves much like the prodigal in the pigsty. And we, because of our sin, have rebelled against him. And, of course, the only right thing for us is to come to our senses and to see that we, we have indeed broken the law of, of our God. And we have indeed sinned against him who is holy and righteous and good. And, and, and to come back to the Father. But the Father is not giving us the cold shoulder when we come. For as the, as the prodigal is a great way off, Jesus says, the Father ran to him and embraced him and, and, and uh, fell on his neck and kissed him. And of course, clothed him and fed him and cared for him wonderfully. And this is, this is the God that we serve. This is the God of Holy Scripture. In his Beatitudes, Jesus said in a very similar frame, Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn because of sin, who have grieved over their wickedness and, and, and their disobedience. Blessed are those who mourn over their transgressions, for they shall be comforted. Second requirement is that repentance is necessary because of remaining or indwelling sin. So this really comes to us as the main reason why those that are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ must continue to confess their sins as a lifelong duty. The, the phrase that we have in our confession, which says, upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, is taken at least in part from Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, and should be understood as, uh, as referring to uh, the teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving there. And so I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7, if you would. Romans chapter 7, and I would like for us just for, for a reminder to read beginning with Romans 7 and verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin, and what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells uh, nothing good. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do it. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, 
warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then of course he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The teaching which the Apostle Paul is here communicating to us um, is that desire uh, to be delivered from indwelling sin, which is the plague of his and our souls, and it is that which is dishonoring to our beloved Savior. Paul is here crying out for deliverance from the presence of indwelling sin in all of its aspects and with all, in terms of all of its consequences. Because of indwelling sin, we are inclined to, to sin. And as second-born citizens of the kingdom of God, we are at war with this principle of death that remains within us. Every single believer is struggling with indwelling sin. And we need to declare war upon it. We need to see that it is the enemy of righteousness. It's the enemy of God and holiness and all that is pleasing to the Lord. Calvin in his Institutes makes this statement that is really makes the point far, far better than, than I could make it. He says... In this matter, all writers of sounder judgment agree that there remains in a regenerate man a smoldering cinder of evil from which desires continually leap forth to allure and spur him to commit sin. We have a powerful enemy inside of us warring against the law of God and the truth and righteousness that has been also implanted in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit in effectual calling. The critical question is, how are we to deal with indwelling sin as we are seeking to walk with God? I think the answer is given to us in both practical and theological terms in the Scripture, and almost all of Paul's epistles deal with this, uh, to some degree, and as well as others. But I think the most practical explanation of this is given by our Lord on the evening in which he observed the last Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And you'll remember very clearly that as Christ had gathered together with those men, there was water there, and there was a towel so that their feet could be washed, but there was no servant who had been appointed to that task. And after appropriate time had been given for one of the disciples to take the initiative to wash the other's feet and to wash the feet of our Savior, Jesus got up. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and took up the basin and the towel and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And when Jesus came to Peter... Peter said, not so, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus responded to Peter with these words. He said, he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. 
And Peter, of course, responded as only Peter could. And he says, Lord, wash my head, head, wash my hands, wash my own self. Is what he really means. And then Jesus made this theological truth, which has profound practical implications for us today. Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Peter was clean, and the other ten were clean, along with Peter. But one, Judas, who was still present, was not clean. And it's very clear what Jesus is teaching. That the bath here refers to effectual calling. It refers to regeneration. It refers to eternal salvation. You have been saved. You have been born again. Your sins are, are, are cleansed by the, by the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. But you still need to have your feet washed. Because as you live life in this world, even though you've been cleansed and saved and all of your sins have been paid for, yet you are picking up the filth of the world and you need to have your feet washed. You need to have your sins cleansed. And so that one of the places where this theological truth is captured best is in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When he says there, or when he writes the, the word that he that's translated confess, it's a word which means to say the same thing or to express agreement with what God has, has said about our sin. Hence, it means to repent. It means to be broken over your sin, to acknowledge your sin, and not to, to, see, to justify your sin or to explain your sin or to try to be relieved from the consequences of that sin, but to yield fully and completely to what God has to say about that sin. Psalm 32 and verse 5 adds, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So as we do battle with indwelling sin, our repentance literally becomes another means by which fruit is produced in our lives. It becomes a means by which, as we do battle and as we confess our sins before God, that, that we are being transformed and we're being changed. The third use of the law as the rule of life for the believer, by its very nature, requires that we confess those sins which we find in our lives. So when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts by breaking one of God's law, the only proper response is to say, God, I've sinned. I've broken your law. And I need forgiveness. Now, what does that kind of confession look like? Because as I've evaluated my own life, I, in studying and preparing for this message, I felt that maybe my attitude towards sin is, is less than biblical. Maybe the words of James in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 could, would be an adequate description of what my heart should feel and what I should experience as I confess my sins before the Lord. 
where he writes, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. A truly repentant person begins to learn and to grow in the knowledge of the plague of his own heart. Also, we must think, or we must not think, that we can produce repentance in our own strength or ability. But we must depend upon the strength that Christ provides through the indwelling presence of His Spirit among us. Indeed, all evangelical works are done by the strength which He provides for us. We are completely dependent upon Him, and it is necessary for Him to work such grace within our hearts and lives. All repentance must be practiced while at the same time trusting fully and completely in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not in our act of repenting, even with good and biblical terms. Dr. Calhoun, in his book on repentance, says that the repentance of a believer is called evangelical repentance because it flows from faith in Jesus Christ as offered in the gospel and because it is experienced under the influence of the covenant of grace and according to the law as a rule of life. And so the, the law, as Paul is, is speaking here in Romans 7 and throughout Scripture, in relationship uh, to God is uh, shining the light upon sin in our lives. And the more we grow in the Lord, the more we are able to identify sin and that which is displeasing and dishonoring to God. And the purpose for that is not to push us down, but to cause us to come back to the cross and back to Christ and to confess those sins and to forsake them through His grace and mercy looking always to the finished work of Christ. And then the third section of our assignment is that repentance requires confession of particular known sins. So we're to daily repent for the whole of our lives. And we are also battling Remaining or indwelling sin, and repentance is essential and necessary for that battle. And then we also are here seeing that we are to actually confess particular sins to us. Now, many may be asking, are we really being instructed to confess every sin particularly? And so maybe we... I think that the writers of the confession at this point may have understood that because there is so much sin in our lives, how in the world are we going to be able to fulfill this? And actually the references that are given for this paragraph are references which reflect this particular part of the statement. For instance, Luke chapter 9 and verse 8 says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 
Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. He is acknowledging that things have been taken by him uh, and, and that they need to be in accordance with the, with the law of Moses, um, paid back, uh, restored fourfold. The other example that's given to us is that of the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, where Paul there says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Now, Paul is here st stating the, the sins that he was guilty of in his pre-conversion state. And um, he, he doesn't, I think it's interesting to note, that, that he doesn't go into any detail about describing his blasphemy, nor does he go into any detail about the instructions that may have been given to soldiers or other people associated with him in uh, persecuting the believers before he was converted. But, but neither does he whitewash, as it were, or overlook what, was, what he had been guilty of in terms of his sins. Rather, he names them clearly for us. God also gives us, for instance, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, a record of David's particular sins. And then in Psalm 51, David describes his own repentance from those sins, while in Psalm 32, he's teaching the benefits of that confession and repentance in his own life and to others. So we read in Psalm 51, in verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Or in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I think a, an illustration of confessing particular sins that we are aware of in our lives is powerfully illustrated in Peter's life. All three of the synoptic gospel writers record Peter's sin of denying the Lord and his broken-hearted repentance. And they all use these words or something similar. He went out and wept bitterly. Now that statement is given to us after in the providence of God, Peter in the courtyard where Christ was being uh, interviewed and questioned and judged. Jesus turns and looks right at Peter after the third denial. And how much benefit would it be for you and I today and every day to be able to look with spiritual eyes to our crucified, risen, and reigning Savior who suffered and died for our sins and to see that we have denied Him in indulging the flesh or in sinning in any number of capacities. As believers who have been saved, we must battle sin, not in general terms, but, in, but very specifically. If this is indeed a battle, and it is, then we must battle the specific enemy and not just the concept in general terms. Our Dr. John Owen has famously said, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And what a powerful statement for us to remember.
What is required, therefore, for us to be killing sin? Repentance. Repentance is necessary to killing sin. And it must be repentance of particular sins. So you ask, is it truly necessary? But I respond by saying, how terrible does sin appear to you when God pours out His wrath upon Jesus as He hung upon the cross? And why did Jesus suffer such? Because of the sins of the elect, because of your sin and my sin, Christ suffered the wrath and judgment of God because of our wickedness. Should we not quake literally as the earth quaked when Christ was suffering there on Calvary? Let me just take a second by way of application to sort of list some sins that might be particularly helpful to us. Maybe such as sins of omission like prayerlessness, failure to concentrate during the preaching of the Word of God, wandering thoughts in public worship, missing the daily necessity of reading the Word and prayer, failure to, to have and to participate in family worship, failure to use whatever spiritual gifts God may give to have, uh, have given us. And also sins of omission, uh, or in addition to omission, sins of commission, such as covetousness, lust, lying, deceiving, materialism, Sabbath-breaking, envy, greed, pride, loss of temper, gluttony, lust, worldliness, ingratitude, vain thoughts, backsliding, arrogance, refusal to forgive a brother in Christ who has acknowledged his sin to us, devotion to our recreation or to our business that in its rightful place is lawful, but to the avoidance of Christian and biblical responsibilities and requirements. I think in terms of application that it is extremely important for us each individually to be aware of our own besetting sin or sins. The Puritans deal with this time and again in their writings. For each of us, besetting sins may be different, but if I'm aware of some particular area of weakness in my own life, some particular area where I, I have a tendency of falling very quickly and easily, that, that I would guard myself, myself in regard to that. But then I would also uh, be ready and willing at the instant when I may be guilty of that to humble myself and get down on my knees before God and confess that sin and seek for His pardon and forgiveness. So when should we confess our sins? And I think that the answer to this question is obvious in light of the of these three requirements in this passage of Scripture. I think that God sent the prophet Nathan to David probably nine months or more after his sin with Bathsheba and then some months later covering that up through the death of Uriah and others who died there on the battlefield because of David's scheming to cover for his sin. So for at least nine months or probably a little longer, David has not acknowledged his sin before God. He's lived with that guilt 
He should have repented long before that time and acknowledged that sin. So we, when we ask, when should we confess our sins, the only proper answer would be immediately. We should immediately confess our sins before God. But because of our own sinfulness, we fail with regard to this necessity and this very clear practical uh, approach to our sin. Once we have sinned, we are, in many ways, we have a blind spot that is there, which hinders us from humbling ourselves before the Lord. Many times we will very honestly and, and, and uh, or dishonestly, we'll say, I'm going to get to this later. I'm going to, I'll, I'll deal with this at, at a more appropriate time when I'm, for, for whatever reason. But I think that my duty as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be to give some practical help here because we do have the tendency uh, of failing to deal with our sins quickly and appropriately in terms of repentance. And so I think that there's a daily opportunity for us. I think all of us here sense the importance of a daily time of Bible reading and prayer that we need as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And such a time affords us an opportunity to evaluate over ourselves over the last 24 or 48 hours to see, is there unconfessed sin within my life? But if for some reason I'm to miss that, the Lord has also given us one day in seven that is a precious and wonderful gift to the body of Christ and to His people. And that day is a day that requires of us that we devote our attentions and our thoughts as well as our activities to the worship of God. And such a day would be a perfect opportunity for us in preparation for public worship to say, has there been any sin in my life this past week that has not been confessed as it should? But if for some reason, even the Lord's Day has not been a means of us recognizing and confessing our sin before the Lord, as we look toward the communion table and we see the elements which symbolize and represent the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, and we know the clear command and instruction of Scripture that the proper observance of the sacrament demands of us, this responsibility that, that we look to the crucified Savior and that we come before Him in humility and that we come confessing our sinfulness before Him, that we would be diligent and faithful to confess those sins before Him. If we fail to confess our sins, we are surely in a backslidden state. Some may be thinking, well, is it wrong to confess sin generally? And my answer to that would be no. I believe that we can confess our sinfulness and our sinfulness in a, in a general sense. And many times in public worship, I will confess the sins of, of our congregation uh, in, in a general way, but with the admonition that all of us as the saints of God uh, would also confess our particular sins. And so, yes, we can confess our sins generally, but not to the exclusion of confessing them particularly. If we are satisfied with only confessing our sins in general terms, then no particular sin uh, is identified, and therefore, 
none is forsaken. Sanctification, that work of the Spirit that is ongoing uh, in each of our lives as His people requires that we be diligent to practice repentance, the whole of our lives, as a necessary part of fighting indwelling sin and to do so by, the repent, by being repentant of particular sins. May God help us to do so faithfully. Let us pray. We thank you, Holy Father, for the confession and for the wisdom of those who crafted it and for the instruction that it gives us. And now we pray that by the assistance of your Spirit that we might practice repentance so that we might grow strong in the Lord and live holy lives that are pleasing to you. Sinning less and representing Christ more gloriously, we pray in His name.